Welcome to Red's Business and Technology Podcast. Uh, my name is Jackson Barnes, my co-host Brad Ferris, and we've got a special guest today who's an expert in the cybersecurity field, Rob Brown from McGraw-Nickel. Uh, we'll be touching on everything cybersecurity focus, some recent events, and what businesses can do to protect themselves um, from the risk of cyber threat. I guess we start, um, probably might introduce myself properly. Um, so Jackson Barnes, uh, being a business development manager at Red, uh, technology advocate and cybersecurity advocate. Brad, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, Brad Ferris here. I'm COO and one of the co-founders at, at Red. So thanks for joining us on our, uh, our new, very new podcast. Yep, episode two. Thanks, Brad. So, Rob, I guess, did you want to introduce... Oh, well, firstly, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank I know you. you're, you're yes. a busy man with a lot on <laughs> with all these recent <laughs> events, uh, probably even more so than before. Um, if you want to introduce yourself um, what, and maybe just focus on yourself, not McGrath-Nickel at this stage sure. and um, what you've done in your past career-wise to get to you to where you are now. Yeah, sure. So, uh, Rob Brown, I'm a director at McGraw-Nickel. Uh, previous to that, uh, also been there for four and a half years, which is probably the longest employment I've ever had in my life, which is, so it says <laughs> something about McGraw-Nickel. Um, previous to that, worked for a big four consulting firm. Um, prior to that, was in law enforcement, so worked for uh, two police services in, in Australia, one being Victoria Police, one being South Australia Police. So, um, started my journey in security in the law enforcement side of things. So, what um, made you want to make the change from the, the police force to cybersecurity? I always wanted to get into e-crime. That was my um, okay. my focus when I was in the policing. I always had interest in, um, yeah, e-crime um, as a, a, a discipline, I guess, in in policing. Um, going down detective road, um, but then so I was studying at the time, and then. Life changes took me to private consulting, so ended up leaving the police much much sooner than I anticipated. But um, yeah, it's taken me down a really exciting and interesting journey after that. So no regrets from that one, to be honest. That's awesome. Did you want to come off? I guess um, you, so. You're a director of the technology and cyber side of McGraw Nickel. Um, yes. What, what, what does your team do? Yeah, so we've got a, a broad range of um, capabilities and services we offer, like any consulting firm. Um, specifically, myself focus on uh, cybersecurity work, uh, whether that's proactive cybersecurity work, so assisting clients with um, identifying cyber risks, or, uh, mitigating those, coming up with plans, strategies, um, things like that, doing assessments. Uh, and then I also focus on the the reactive side of things. So I lead the uh, incident response team. Um, so that's, you know, if something goes wrong uh, from a cybersecurity incident, um, then we get parachuted in usually to assist clients with trying to uh, contain the issue, um, investigate what happened, how it happened, um, ensure that the, the threat actor, um, also known as a hacker, um, isn't in there anymore, isn't causing any havoc, and then investigate what might have been done while they were in there. So do like an end-to-end type investigation or any aspect of that instant response. So from a, a day-to-day um, can't really anticipate what's going to happen when you walk in the door yeah. or at six o'clock at night on a Friday, you might get a call um, that somebody's had a, a cyber incident. Um, but we do a lot of proactive stuff as well, which is nice to speak to to clients proactively about cyber risk rather than always reactively responding to stuff. So um, I'd say business-wise, uh, we're about like a 60-40 split, some proactive 60% 40% reactive, So which is nice to have a bit of both because I think doing instant response 100% would 
get pretty tiring. Yeah, it would. I imagine <laughs> there'd be a lot of weekend work in that. And yeah. uh, that's when most, like Friday night, Saturday morning kind of stuff is when it would ramp up and get out of control. Um, yeah, totally. How big's your team in Brisbane? Brisbane, we're 12 in the tech team, um, about 50 all up in the office. But um, as a, a consulting advisory practice, we have a mix of capabilities. So we do accounting, forensic accounting, things like that, um, insolvency, administrations. Um, but then we've got a large tech team to support those functions internally as well. And then you guys would operate nationally as well, no doubt? Yes, yeah, we've got a national team in every major capital city, can respond to every major capital city, <laughs> a regional centre as well. Um, but yeah, we've got teams in Sydney, Bris or Sydney, Perth, Canberra and Melbourne as well. So um, good national presence. Yeah, cool. And is your team growing with the cyber risk growing over the past few years? Is your team naturally grown with that as well? Yeah, definitely. So when I was at, when I joined McGraw Nickel, there were three people in our team. Um, oh, wow. So I was uh, the second, the third person brought in um, to join. Um, and since then, yeah, we're, we've grown to 12 and that's in four years. So wow. decent growth locally and then nationally as well. They've experienced the same sort of growth in each of the, the capital cities as well as the, the need has increased for um, people in the cyber industry. And naturally we've got clients um, who use us for other aspects of the work that we do. So, and then they always get interested in the cyber security stuff as well. So um, again, it's a bit of that. Yeah, that kind of crossover. Yeah, crossover, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. So I guess um, in this podcast, we want to get some of your insights as being an ex expert in that cybersecurity field. Um, did you? There's been a, a topical because um, was it yesterday? The uh, Optus, Optus yesterday, yes. Uber last week. Some ridiculous. Perfect timing, mate. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <Yeah. in. laughs> um, didn't plan that at all, but <laughs> there you go. Um, from your point of view, as an expert in that field, did you want to go through the Optus breach that happened yesterday? I know it's not all fully known yet, but um, what happened there and what people, uh, other businesses um, in Queensland or across Australia should be aware of so that they're not the next Optus? Yeah, so Optus is an interesting one because it's it is so fresh, um, and I saw them get a bit roasted in the media yeah. today because they said that they were delayed in getting it, um, information out there about the breach. But actually, in fact, I think they've they've actually notified people pretty quickly, given they only identified this on Wednesday. So um, I think that there's a lot that's unknown at the moment. Probably um, the fact that they know that there's that many people from the general public who are affected gives be a good idea that they must know what's going on internally and what was what was actually accessed at the time so in terms of um public people like people impacted um from the general population i think it was like seven million or something like that like quite Big substantial yep. yeah, yeah quite huge um and you think about the information that telcos um will request of you when you sign up for an account yep. Um, the type of information they, they hold is, is pretty serious and can be used um, later on down the track if it's taken to monetize um, identity theft, things like that, um, used um, to set up you know, fake bank accounts, fake credit cards, um, used to set up fake mailboxes to, for drug drops and things like that, all sorts of stuff. Well, they usually do. It's the hunt, is it, do they still call it that? 100 points ID? So you're, yeah. yeah. It could be everything. Passport, driver's license, yeah. bill, building address. Yeah. And the problem with, organizations and that's uh, it's not just um you know to telcos but everybody once we have information we're not really good at getting rid of it we we keep it we hold on to it we store it it's um it's saved somewhere um but we're not necessarily really good at disposing of it after we don't need it anymore so we tend to retain a lot of information um, and when that information is personally identifiable 
um, that's a huge risk for mm. organizations. So if you don't, if they don't need it anymore, or it's not required, or it's in a database, then you can get rid of some of it potentially. Um, or once you've verified your customer, who they are, and you know them from the hundred points, um, do you need to maintain that information necessarily? So, but I mean, uh, data, and you, and you guys will be well aware, client data, um, like they're requesting more and more storage mm. all the time because it's just main, they're creating lots and lots of data all the time as well. So yeah. And I think um, I've heard from uh, like real estate and, and law firms that they, after they have to have the data, they try and get rid of it. But you're right. I think most other businesses out there just keep data forever and they don't have proper retention policies mm. right now. Um, so that's good advice for sure. Yeah, it's um, it's something we come across all the time. Like there's a data, a life cycle where from creation to storage to transmission to um, and deletion is part of that life cycle. It's supposed to be anyways, but we're yeah. not very good at getting rid of it. You know, it's supposed to be seven years for some data for financial records and stuff like that. But a lot of companies don't have necessarily a policy around it um, and getting rid of it. So, yeah, it's um, that's one of the biggest risks. And I guess that's with Optus. Um, the type of data that they maintain um, and the data that was potentially taken or alleged to have been taken, um, that's going to be interesting to see how, um, if it's sold or how it's used or um, who takes responsibility for it. Or um, sometimes you don't even know the, the repercussions of, of what's happened or the true impact until a couple of years down the line when people start getting weird accounts set up in their name or bad credit ratings or things like that start happening. Has anything been said about that one? Like I know Uber was the guy who was just just a kid who was trying to prove a point, I believe is my understanding. Mm. But um, was Optus actually cybercrime for a profit? I heard there's something about a firewall, but I don't think there's a definitive answer yet. Of yeah, misconfiguration of a firewall, I think, is the root cause that's been um, identified. But in terms of threat actor group, I don't think they've been identified yet um, who's actually responsible for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I know ACSC, obviously given the, um, the critical infrastructure nature of Optus, yeah. um, and I'm sure that there's heaps of government organizations who use Optus and their <laughs> services. Yeah. Um, so, and they would have been identified as a critical infrastructure uh, business um, under the new legislation for sure. So, ACSC would be definitely involved. All over in, that, yep. One thing that um, is for sure definitely is not good for uh, Optus's brand name in the no. market right now. Um, you know, all of their customers uh, having to reset passwords and. Mm. Maybe on change who they do the mobile phones through that kind of thing. Um, so that's a little bit scary, that's for sure. Um, over to the, the Uber breach happened a week ago. Did you want to give your rundown um, of what happened in that breach? And because it was a pretty unique one, mm. uh, what went down there. And luckily, uh, from what we discussed internally, wasn't too bad the actual outcome, but it was still pretty scary. Did you want to go through um, as a professional in that field what happened exactly? Yeah. So. Again, from a, a lot of the information has just been what's dispersed um, in the media or what people, um, researchers have put out there as to what actually happened. I don't know if uh, Uber has necessarily come out and confirmed um, <laughs> the exact tack chain. Um, but I guess from um, the inception of it, it started with uh, a user awareness issue. So it came back to um, a user receiving a push notification on their phone for multi-factor authentication, which is um, somebody trying to log into their account with legit credentials. And I think that they were being spammed by these, these push notifications and just ended up pre- pressing approve on, their, on the push notification they received on their phone, um, which then gave the person who had the credentials immediate access to their account. And then from there, it led to 
um, identifying other credentials of administrators and things like that that could be used to then traverse the, the internal network and then get access to things like Sentinel One, which is their EDR platform and an AV tool that they were using and, um, and access to all sorts of information as well. Once you have a decent level of privileged um, in somebody's network, it gives you a, a very good level of access to a lot of information. Yeah, it's I'm like he's sure, the castle. I'm pretty sure there was an um, administrator account or something that it was plain text stored yes. somewhere they got access to. Yeah, and I mean, um, with Windows servers, um, and a lot of credentials are stored in plain text that you can dump from memory, or you can dump hashes and crack them offline. Um, there's a lot of ways that uh, threat actors um, will do that, and we see it all the time. Once they get access to an environment, they move quickly to try and identify um, potential accounts that they can use to then... Um, yeah, continue their attack and, and do as much damage as possible. And that's with usually privileged accounts. So administrator accounts is what they look for. It's quite scary that an 18-year-old um, one person can breach a large organisation like that. I guess it's a good outcome that it wasn't um, you know a big cyber criminal mm. company <laughs> and they were trying to do something really bad because that could have got really nasty. Well, and again, it's the classic tried and true technique, the social engineering. Mm. I mean, it's that's the one that's really hard to... Always protect a, against really yeah it's always a person at the other, other end of the keyboard who's uh yeah you've got the a, biggest you control, yeah the biggest risk to the organization you could have all the controls in place and obviously they had you know they're big enterprise organization they'd have heaps of security great controls um but then it comes down to somebody accepting a push notification on a phone that wasn't legit like it's it's <laughs> what can you do as an organization? Um, again, like just train, 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 train your yeah. staff. Yeah. So what, what, what advice have you given to, to organizations who've been done by social engineering and they've put all the pre-measures in place, like had firewalls and they've had MFA enforced across, they've got proper threat detection response tools mm. rolled out, uh, but they have been breached like, like Uber, for example. What advice have you given back to that organization post the attack? Yeah, so, um, I mean, cyber awareness is key for any um, organization, um, small or large. Uh, again, like if somebody can identify a, a potential uh, threat actor using their account or a suspicious email that might have a, you know, a malicious link or a malicious attachment, the person who's receiving those emails, they're the, the forefront of cyber security for any organization. So, um, you know, web filtering, email filtering, things like that stuff does does get through. There's ways of bypassing those things, those technical controls. So the person, cyber awareness training is one of the, the key things that we always are banging on about. It, it is, you know, it can be a bit boring and people glaze over when they have to do mandatory training and things like that, but it, it does um, hopefully um, lift up the cybersecurity maturity for an organization. So that's one aspect. Um, the other aspect, I guess, is making sure you've got, in cybersecurity, we talk about defense in depth. Um, so you can have a really, really great hard perimeter, uh, which is great. But if the inside's all squishy and mushy and you don't have any security controls internally, then that's going to be a problem. Somebody get, breaches that in external perimeter. So you want to have a bunch of controls um, throughout um, you know, the, the perimeter. And then once you get inside, um, anti-tamper on your EDR. So if you're using like Sophos or um, Symantec or Central One, like big end of town, they'll have the option to have anti-tamper in place so that you can't delete or modify or change things um, without specific codes or access. Um, so there's a lot of different, um, I guess, processes depending on the size of the organization that you can put in place or controls. But it's not just making sure that your external perimeter is secure. It's actually about a lot more. How would you, how would you rate awareness at the moment? 
in general? Like, are you seeing, uh, like, you know, anecdotally, just myself, I, I definitely see it as definitely being more topical and people mm. are probably aware how deep that awareness is. I'm not sure. But, um, you know, when you're out in the field and, and working with your clients, how, how would you rate that awareness curve? Is it kind of growing at a rapid rate now or still a bit steady, still a bit ways to go? Yeah, it's... It, Definitely depends on the industry, I think. Um, some people are very interested in it, and so we'll take on the message. Some people, again, um, not necessarily as interested or as savvy um, with it from a tech perspective, so it's a bit harder to get the message through. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that hackers will prey on. Yeah. They're the ones who they you know send off 50,000 emails with this one e- email address that they're hoping that is going to click on it. So, um, But yeah, I think that... Things like Optus, things like Uber, things like that that are in the media, the more and more it's in the media, people become more and more aware of it being an issue. But um, business email compromises haven't slowed down. Um, I think that's why Microsoft's um, actually forcing everybody to have MFA on their account from November. I think that's a requirement going forward um, just because it just doesn't exist. And it's one of the the key ways that um, hackers are are getting into environments or or, um, committing fraud. Um, But from a... from a cyber awareness perspective, um, we do a lot of training with clients, and um, we usually see after you know a decent cyber awareness program, a bit of uplift in their maturity and being able to detect things, and people know, oh yeah, that's the phishing email, and this is how I should report it, and things like that. So we do see um, from the start, yeah, it might not be great maturity, but towards an end of a, a program, you definitely see an increase in, in people's ability to identify things, which is good. So your two, two bits of advice are cybersecurity awareness training and then the internal tools and, and policies to reduce the blast radius when stuff actually does yeah. get through that initial perimeter. Yeah, I think that's um, that's one of the yeah the, the things, again, it's a cybersecurity strategy is the defense in depth strategy. Um, it's one of the things we always bang on about um, yeah. because it's, uh, if you can identify something, you know, you don't identify it at the exterior, but you can identify it as it gets in, you can uh, minimize definitely the, the impact. Yeah. So well, from what you've seen, um, Rob, in the Queensland market or Australian market in like the recent three months, what industries and like size of companies have been the biggest targets um, as in like generally speaking? Um We've uh, responded to all sorts of sizes and um, industries. It's uh, I don't think necessarily there's a target from some of the threat actor groups that we see. Um, they're more um, looking for known vulnerabilities, so scanning for known vul- vulnerabilities. And when they find one, it doesn't matter if it's a hospital, a local government, a mining company, or um, a two-man show um, that does accounting business somewhere like our finance business it's just they they find the vulnerability and they'll try and exploit it and they'll try and exploit that um that client or that um that customer so that's that um that's one thing so we we've responded to local government recently mining client recently um i'm trying to think uh yeah, it's it doesn't it doesn't seem to um, discriminate, unfortunately. So it's, just wherever they can get in, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So for known vulnerabilities, like things like the exchange vulnerabilities that we saw last year, um, Proxy Shell was the main one. Um, so scanning for those vulnerabilities, Log4j was a big one. Um, obviously, and still, you know, we're still seeing scanning for that when a threat actor gets in. They're looking for those vulnerabilities. Um, so as when a new vulnerability gets dropped, uh, if it's not patched right away. Uh, we'll, we'll see that try to get exploited. Uh, a couple of years ago was the Fortinet firewalls was a big one. Um, they had a, a vulnerability that a lot of um, people hadn't patched for. 
um, which was being exploited. We did like three ransomwares in the space of three months for that specific yeah, vulnerability. Wow. So yeah, it's just what's what's the flavor of the the week sometimes, and um, and who's not patched it. Yeah, so I guess that's probably another thing we wanted to cover. So you, you've kind of answered that in, in in that response in that we were going to ask, you know, what are the what are the biggest risks? Like if you are to cover yourself, to identify those key risks, so it sounds like patching obviously is absolutely mm. critical. Um, training. Training, yep. Um, or maybe over to you. What, yeah, like yeah what do you so, think oh, I mean, Essential 8 for the ACSE, um, Australian Cyber Security Centre, has um, the Essential 8. So it's a framework that they, they recommend that all businesses in Australia adhere to. Um, and they say if you implement all the controls within there to some sort of level of maturity, um, you can prevent 90% of cyber attacks. Yeah, and then that's a good, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, and the maturity levels? Um, so they're one to three, depending on the extent to which you've deployed um, the, the controls. So like multi-factor authentication, again, is, is one of the key ones. Yep. That they re- and that's one um, I would recommend that all customers <laughs> put on. in place. Yeah. Um, and people go, oh, yeah, I've got... Um, Microsoft 365 got um, you know multi-factor, and it's like, well, how, what, what do you use for remote access into your environment? Oh, a VPN. Do you have MFA on that? And they're like, oh no, I don't have MFA on that. So there's always um, other external accesses that need to be considered, not just email um, for multi-factor. But so would you say, um, and it's an interesting one, like on our end as well, having this conversation with clients. Um, would you say, you know, at a minimum, everybody really should be on maturity level one? I'd say so, yeah. At an absolute minimum. Well, there's, I mean, there's harder ones as part of the, the essential light. There's harder controls to implement than, right. um, some are easy, some are hard, um, some are process driven. Striving to. Yes, exactly. So um, like MFA is one that I think is a no, no brainer now yeah. in this day and age um, and what we know and how, and how we know it happens. Again, Uber had MFA, but um, the it's way true. that they'd, I guess configured it or enabled it, um, just meant that somebody hit the approve button rather than hit, you know entering a code or something like that. Which are, it's funny you go, you go to so many small businesses and they say, yeah, I've got MFA on my accounting package, so we're sweet. And then you go, oh, <laughs> but you log into the computer and you've got all your files sitting there, and they're like, oh yeah, but we've got MFA on the account- accounting system, so we're, we're sweet. <laughs> Look, we also kind of see it loosely enforced, mm-hmm. and there'll always be. It's generally the more senior people in a business, especially in the small to medium space where it'll be an owner or a director and it annoys them a little bit. Yeah. So they ask for it to be turned off, but it's like you're kind of the account that they'd probably want to get into. Exactly. You're going to have all the keys to all the different systems in your account. So I believe, look, from my seat where I've been sitting, I have seen that awareness um, building. People are being a little bit more responsible, responsible about it. Um, however, there's still a few people who you know you really have to balance the risk versus convenience i suppose Mm. in this case and i I think the risks are really starting to outweigh convenience and people are okay fine we'll we'll do it yeah oh totally then there's some there's some controls like i said that are um you know hard to implement like application controls not something you can just flick a switch on and it's it's working it's it's a it's a hard process It, it can take a lot of time um a lot of testing it's not yeah an easy thing to do Mm. Um, so yeah, but having a, a proper patching regime in place to make sure that your operating systems and applications are up to date, that's something that you can yep. do. You can put a process in place to make sure that if something 
gets identified that's critical that you patch it right away. So yeah, and you're not running legacy, you know, Microsoft Windows XP. Yeah, yeah, or support, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, exactly. What other security frameworks would so when you come across an organization, say they're a hundred person um, construction company or they're thousand um, person hospital, for example. What um, security frameworks do you recommend they use and like what are the top ones that you recommend apart from the essential aid, which is just kind of like a blanket coverall for mm. any small business, right? What are the other frameworks that you align to and recommend to organizations? Yeah, so depending on the organization, um, NIST is a great one. Um, they've got several different frameworks um, that they have uh, released um, and the cybersecurity framework or CSF is probably a really good one for that small to medium enterprise organization to understand where the maturity is, where the risks might be. It's um, it's not it's got a good level of um, technical control um, in the in the framework built into there. It's not just based on policies and procedures and things like that. Um, it actually understands business business risk it follows a proper process so it looks at you know from your preparation to your ability to identify and detect um, cyber incidents how you would recover from a, a, a cyber incident if it did happen from backups and things like that so the NIST CSF or cybersecurity frameworks is a really good one it's really adaptable um, from a, a small again to medium enterprise organization um, the larger end of town is going to be more interested in getting certification potentially. So like ISO certification is, is a big one that we see. So ISO 27001, um, which is a cybersecurity risk management framework. Um, that's, that's one that's very popular, I guess, if organizations want to prove that they have a good level of process and um, risk management internally to deal with cybersecurity. And that's all about your processes and policies and things like that. Um, so that's a good one as well um, that the bigger end of town looks at. And even organizations like McGraw-Nickel, when we're trying to prove, look, we take cybersecurity um, seriously. Here's a, we've got, you know, certified ourselves, or haven't certified ourselves, but we've gone down the certification road um, and got certified um, through ISO 27001 as well. So, so um, I guess in that vein, um, so all about managing risk at, at kind of an organization and a company level, board level, um, so, you know, you can put all the tools and practices in place and then effectively what's left over you try and insure for. Um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on or what you're seeing um, in the market for insurance and, you know, what what insurance companies are asking for because I've been reading that they're asking for more and more and more protection mm -hmm. controls and things in place. Um, is that kind of what you're yeah, seeing as well? definitely. Um, I think... Uh, insurance businesses have been burned the last couple of years yeah. <laughs> over the amount of people making claims on on their policy, um, especially with the rise of ransomware. Um, business interruption is a huge cost in cyber incidents. Um, people think, oh, like the like the cost of getting people like us in to investigate is expensive. That's not that's not the expensive part. The expensive part is if your business can't operate for several weeks, um, a loss of business or business interruption cost is huge. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what we're seeing is uh, a greater, um, I guess, scrutiny from cyber insurers on um, before they actually give somebody a policy, actually understanding where their maturity is sitting um, and, and making sure they've got a good, great level of maturity and minimum level of standards as well. And how far do they have to go? I mean, do you have to get down to you know detection and response or just aligning to a framework, some controls, a combination? I guess it depends on like, mm. a lot of factors that go into it. But I mean, is it trending towards having to have active um, cyber control? Yeah, so I think that 
um, from what I've seen um, and what we've seen is that um, they want to make sure you have some uh, a minimum po policies and plans in place, like instant response plan. They want to see that, that you've got a disaster recovery plan. How are you going to recover if you have a cyber incident? They want to see that on, on paper and mm -hmm. make sure you've got something. Um, bigger end of town, they want to make sure you've tested those things as well. So if you've tested your instant response plan and done a, you know, a tabletop scenario with your, your board or the crisis management team to make sure um, if it does happen, you actually know what you're going to do. Mm. Um, so we've seen that. I've seen um, MFA as a non-negotiable, like not even being considered for a policy unless <laughs> you've got multi-factor authentication in place. Um, there's a couple of different insurers out there in the market. Some will take on the risk. Um, some will make you pay a lot more for the policy, yeah, yep. depending on your maturity level. Um, but it's yeah, we're seeing a bit of a, a shift as well in, um, in businesses and organizations going down the self-insurance road and spending the money rather on a cyber insurance policy on a cyber program. Because I think that the return on investment is greater to invest the money they have to spend on a policy annually okay. on actually in increasing and improving their cybersecurity internally. Yeah, I actually had that conversation with a with a client um, like two weeks ago, mm. and they were saying, "Yeah, well, this is our cyber insurance." He just showed me their quote, and um, he said, "Yeah, we're looking at not doing that and just putting in better business continuity and instant response plans mm. in place." What's your advice around that? Do you we, we say as IT provider, definitely get cyber insurance because if something goes wrong, you need, we need well, to cover top to I look at it as, you know, it, it's almost a, you know, a spectrum, right? So how much you're doing over here, how much controls you're putting in place. Yep. And again, you're going to kind of have, well, here's your risk spectrum. So you cover a bit here and that could be your controls. You know, you could spend more money on controls and detection response, et cetera, and that takes you a bit further out. And whatever that gap is, I suppose you're trying to, you're trying to, you know, you're insure for. So, I, look, I, I don't know. I'm definitely not an expert in the, in, in, in the, in the field, but um, I, it'd be interesting to go no insurance. That's mm. Yeah, and some people are doing that. Some people are doing, or some organizations are going, again, the minimum level of coverage, having some coverage in place, but yeah. not getting a policy that's worth the millions and millions of dollars that um, they might require if something does happen. And, again, spending that, investing that money that they would, um, would have spent on a, a cyber insurance policy even putting it into actual cyber program themselves or buying some new kit or um, investing in people, things like that. That's what they um, are doing instead. So it's, yeah, I think it's it's a, probably a work in progress in yeah. terms of where we're at at this stage. It's very dynamic, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's, it's changing um, rapidly. Because, I, I, again, I think cyber insurance got burned over the last couple of years. Yes. And so it's uh, they're sort of probably trying to reassess. <laughs> I know some, I've heard some insurers are get, trying to get out of the game. Um, again, probably making their policies so cost prohibitive that nobody wants to buy it potentially. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a changing market for sure. Um, it's going to be, obviously, there'll be a, a space for, for cyber insurance. And some organizations will have a great cyber program and great maturity and still will buy cyber insurance because they're the type of enterprise organization that needs that and yep. wants that coverage. It's, it's, quite it's, a, it's quite a weird one because um, small businesses who don't have all of the procedures and business continuing that stuff set up, they're the ones who need cyber insurance more, um, but then they're the ones who get the cyber insurance being twice the price everyone else and, mm. and they say, oh, we can't afford that, we'll get away without it. So, I mean, it's a no-win kind of situation in that industry right now, really. And we had... Um, a cyber insurance provider in a couple of weeks ago and they said, yeah, we're just turning away some clients because um, they just didn't have these these measures in place mm. and their policy was coming due and they had not enough time to put the measures in place to get to like a maturity um, two on essential eight, for example, to get cost-effective cyber insurance. So they just turned them away and said, oh, well, 
deal with that next year or something. Um, yeah, and there's always, like, as, like you'd tell those organizations, talk to the brokers because the brokers should hopefully be able to find somebody who would potentially give them a policy or something or, or you know, be able to tell them what they need to do to get a, a policy anyways. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, again, there's it's a changing space. It's a interesting um, dynamic market. Um, yeah, it's it's going to evolve even more probably. And I'm not, again, a cyber insurance um, professional or expert either, so I wouldn't profess to mm. say that I know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I think if we all had crystal balls, it'd be interesting. Mm. Yeah, like I said, you, what you do on a day-to-day basis change every, changes every time, mm. right? Uh, every, every day? Yeah, every day. Every time we get a, um, a new, uh, investigate a new cyber incident, um, it's changed. Threat actor groups change. They become more and more efficient. They become more and more sophisticated. Um, the tools that they use are becoming more and more custom built themselves. They're, they're engaging their own developers to, to develop their own tools. Um, they're actually paying for their own pen testing to, for people to identify vulnerabilities within their tools to make like sure threat that, actors are. Yeah, yeah, right. So they, um, yeah. So Lockbit was one that went out and said, you know, claimed that their encryption tool was, you know, best of breed, was amazing, um, was paying somebody for like bug bounties to to identify vulnerabilities in their code. Yeah, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's like a whole industry. I know yeah. you, can, you can get um, like ransomware as a service. You mm. can you can buy now and stuff. That's just scary. How that's an act, a whole industry. That whole um, it's nuts what's going on out there stuff. at the moment. I mean, you could talk for you could talk for a long time yeah, on all this exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. A whole industry. The just the the threat actor side. Yeah, so we're seeing that like it's it's sophisticated. Um, you know, previously two years ago we would have seen. Um, uh, an organization that got compromised and somebody trolling through their file server and collecting files and putting them in a staging location in a folder and then uploading them to like a cloud service like Mega. Um, that doesn't happen anymore. It's They're using custom tools to exfiltrate data quickly. Um, it's going out over the internet so you can't even identify potentially what it is that's going out or the amount of data they're compressing it when they're actually sending it out so you can't actually tell the volume of mm. data that was taken it's not leaving a lot of the forensic artifacts that we would usually see during the process so where somebody accesses a file or a folder um, it will leave uh, you know like a fingerprint behind so we're not seeing that as well so it's it's making the anti-forensics that they're uh, employing as well as part of their tactics is um, improving and making our job a lot harder as well so, <laughs> yeah I was going to say that it sounds yeah. like they're making your job a lot harder yes. from the forensics mm. incident response side if they're deleting all their tracks and constantly constantly mm. evolving cleaning up after themselves yeah it's um, yeah they're getting really good at that because they understand um, what we look at for um, and when they're trying to extort a business after they've taken all the data they don't they want to have this illusion that they've taken heaps amount of data that they, you know, we can't actually identify that what they've taken. They want this um, this ability to um, go after them for as much money as possible by making sure that they have no idea what has actually been taken. And it could be great stuff. It could be, you know, stuff that's, you know, not, not, could be bad, but not necessarily terrible. Um, could be stuff like the customer information from Optus, which is, you know, worst case scenario. So if they have that illusion about what's actually been taken, then, um, the organization trying to negotiate with them um, puts them on the back foot. Yeah, it's a scary world out there. So scary when an 18 year old can get into get into Uber. Yeah. Um, conscious of time, is there anything else you wanted to add, Rob, before we close out? Um, so I guess the we, we talked about what what companies can do. Really understanding, and I, I think we touched on it, um, like understanding your environment, understanding uh, where your weaknesses might be, your risks are. Um, using a framework um, is really important because then you can 
uh, monitor yourself against that framework as you as your journey um, continues. Um, you can put a, a program in place to make sure you're addressing your risk. You can report on that risk regularly. So really putting a getting a framework to to get behind you on your journey is a really important thing. Um, wrote some other things. Oh, remote access. Some we see all the time. Remote access into a, an environment is uh, make sure it's. Uh, secured appropriately. <laughs> it's one of, the, one of the things, whenever we get a uh, sovereign, and obviously you're trying to find how um, threat actor got into the environment, and it's usually re misconfigured remote access somehow, whether it's through a firewall or through remote access tool that didn't have MFA, VPN, something like that. So just being really confident in the way that um, your environment's being accessed remotely. Yeah, that's good, good advice. Really appreciate you coming, coming, Rob, and sharing some insights. You know, some really good good takeaways um, for, from what you shared about aligning to a benchmark, for example, and getting that cybersecurity awareness training um, for employees, but also looking at past that initial perimeter, uh, having the policies and tools in place to reduce the blast radius of when yep. you do get affected. Um, and it sounds like you're going to be very busy with everything going on yes. in the market. So <laughs> really appreciate it, Rob. Um, Thanks, guys. How can uh, people reach you um, if they need, to, need some advice around cybersecurity? Um, well, McGraw-Nickel.com. Um, it's a, it's, yeah, the website's the easiest one. It's got all the information. Um, numbers for everybody on there as well um so and through red obviously if you guys have our details so yeah, yeah cool awesome appreciate it, rob thanks for coming in awesome thanks, thanks for sharing Cheers. Cheers.